I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? Don't accept. I accept. The train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello everyone and welcome to 80 Days in Exploration Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you as ever by three history and geography nerds in an internet-powered balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly. I'm broadcasting from Dublin, Ireland, and joining me are... Mark Boyle in Syria in the UK. And Joe Byrne in Galway, Ireland. And in this episode, we'll be talking about Paris, or rather, what lies underneath that famous city, mm-hmm. the Paris Catacombs. What began as a network of mines beneath the city, which spanned approximately 200 miles or 322 kilometers, soon morphed into something much, much more. A crisis in the 18th century quite literally shook the foundations of the city, prompting the creation of an ossuary, or a network of catacombs beneath the city, which would go on to become home to generations of Parisian dead. Throughout the centuries, these catacombs have become a city beneath the city, and have been host to a number of wild and wonderful tales, including revolutions, occupations, secret cinemas, and even heists. At this point, I'd normally tell you the population of the place we're discussing, but we can only give an approximate figure for this one, and it's possibly a record for this podcast. Around 6 million, all of whom, as far as we know, are dead. Very spooky. Hmm. So yeah, you should be listening to this episode uh, in and around Halloween time, and it is a it is a very very appropriate topic for that time of year. Completely uh, by accident. <laughs> yes, it's definitely not uh, midsummer at the moment while we're recording this. Um, so yeah, do you guys want to tell me a little bit about uh, what you're looking forward to talking about today? Well, it's it's a really really interesting place, and and it's nice to get back to cities you know although we won't be talking a lot about the city above the ground no well today. we were never going to be able to do paris it's so, we're so not boring paris there's no history there yeah um but to be able to explore a little bit around paris is lovely so something i'm looking forward to talking about is um a bit nerdy but it, it sort of is about how maybe putting bones into these holes in the ground isn't that absurd a thing to do considering what was there to begin with mm. And if you think about the big picture and large timescales, maybe this is a just humanity um, paying it back. Joe Byrne says bone holes is natural. So, uh, what about you, Mark? Yeah, so I'm I'm looking forward to um, let's call it let's call it a recipe. Uh, it is it is Paris related, so not quite haute cuisine. It's 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 how does one sour bouillon? Uh, it's a it's an unusual method of souring bouillon, uh, as in okay. you know, soupy meat stock stuff. And sure. Do we? Does anyone want to do that? Uh, not this way. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of things that I'm looking forward to talking about. One of which is uh, similar to yours, Mark, is food related. I think the one I want to mention up top is quite possibly the creepiest dinner party you could ever imagine, or at least that I I could ever imagine. I, I'm sure I'll be having um. Vivid nightmares about this one uh, once I've discussed it on the podcast. So you've been forewarned. Um, All right. But uh, 
yeah, we wanted to give a shout out to a couple of key sources on this one as well. We don't we don't typically do this, but um, you know, this is such a niche subject that uh, we wanted to call out the the sources that we relied on very heavily. Uh, so for myself and Joe, I think Erin Marie Legacy's uh, "Making Space for the Dead: Catacombs, Cemeteries, and the Reimagining of Paris." That was one of the one of the books that we we relied on quite yep. heavily for our sections. They're very interesting. Oh yeah. And very interesting that even beyond, like we're not going to talk about cemeteries and uh, and museums that she talks about in that book, but mm. the, the, it is an interesting narrative she's got there about how all of all of this is a part of a Paris reimagining how death works. Exactly, yeah. Right? There's a lot of theory in that book about you know the the meaning of death to Parisian society during this period. So, um, which we're probably not going to touch on too much, but if so, if this subject you know, piques your interest, we'd highly recommend checking out that book. Uh, and I know, Mark, you had uh, another one that you were you were delving into as well. Uh, delving into a much thinner, uh, much, much more large print book, which was called <laughs> The Catacombs of Paris uh, by Charles River Editors. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that was uh, that was my main nice. source, one of my sections. So, Joe, you want to kick us off with some very, very early history? Yes. So I've, I've labeled my section Big Bang to 1700. Uh, Brilliant so it's a, going back a while so yes um so settle in guys fittingly the start of this story of mortal remains begins 250 million years ago with piles and piles of the mortal remains of shellfish is that too okay. dramatic um anyway the sea exists and these shellfish are falling to the bottom of the ocean in what would one day become France or become the Paris Basin. And this is where so many rocks come from, you know. So sedimentary rocks are all built up from the the calcium-y bits of shellfish, the shells and the, the spines and all that kind of thing. So over the ages, this sediment built up and alluvial soil built up as this area went above and below the water line um, over many, many millions of years. And eventually this would become the region through which the River Seine flows and where the city of Paris would be built. Uh, these layers would be sculpted by being submerged in seawater. There would be inland lagoons, fresh waters, rivers, rains. And you get this rich geological strata of various different minerals built up layer upon layer, hiding under the earth beneath the feet of the first humans to eventually come to this region. The layers that are of interest to us include things like there's chalk, there's calcium carbonate, which is really deep down. On top of that, there's clay, which is made up from silica-rich life forms that live there later. Uh, and then the most important for our story is the so-called Lutetian limestone, which in French was known as calcaire crossier historically. And this was laid down from, again, the remains of sea aquatic life, during an era called Lutetian Age, which is 41 to 47 million years ago. And this geological epoch is actually named after Paris. So Lutetia was the Roman name oh, for Paris. Cool. Yeah, I and, think I, I, I've come across that later on in, in, in my section as well, Lutetia. Hmm. So yeah, I wasn't aware of that. Yes, so uh, like when sea life was sedimented and compressed uh, in shoreline lagoons, so this area around Paris was at the shore of a great ocean, during the Lutetian mm. period. And the Lutetian period is used to describe a period of time all around the world. But it started the geologists who named it were excavating the ground under Paris and called it after Paris. 
there's uh, layers of marl and gravel on top of this. So the the the, the Titian limestone is about forty meters down, I think. Can I ask what okay. marl is? Marl is um, it's a good question. It's another kind of rock. Uh, I I can't I can't answer that. I did know. <laughs> no worries. No. no, you can't uh, ask what marl. A very is. French rock. <laughs> and it's the final layer of of interesting minerals is basically the sea returned one last time or a couple of last times more recently. And you got layers of um, saltwater pools evaporating, which left behind gypsum, which is a calcium sulfate dihydrate crystals. So a different calcium salt. And gypsum is prone to dissolving in fresh water, so it gets washed away in a lot of places. But Uh-oh. it was left here in a couple of the hills around Paris. So Montmartre and Belleville uh, are these kind of gypsum hills that avoided being washed away by the River Seine. So, you know, that, that gypsum is, is an important mineral in Paris, but it's not really the most important one to our story. It, it's plaster of Paris that's used to make plasters and casts and um, sculptures. Um, and it was probably the first thing mined in the region. But the Letitian limestone is basically what gives Paris its look. All the white, kind of warm, elusive, creamy grey stone um, is is Lutetian limestone. So you have okay. seen this limestone. It's what uh, Notre Dame is made of. It's what so many of the great buildings in Paris are made of. So the kind of city of light moniker from this white coloured city mm. we see, that comes from the darkness below. These were valuable building materials, the, the, the chalk and the gypsum and the limestone. And there's some evidence that as early as the Romans, there was some mining, um, digging, uh, you know, wells until they hit some, I think the clay was the earliest thing mined here. Uh, so the Montagne Saint-Genevieve, which I think is where the university is today, um, was the, one of the earlier mining sites. So initially the primitive mining techniques in the Roman Gallo, the Gallo-Roman period were sort of open-air pits where you just chipped away at the earth and found the rocks you wanted as close to the surface as possible. That obviously could only yield a certain amount. And by the 15th century, that was completely out of fashion. So this was the the the... the low-hanging fruit, as it were. The The city of Lutetia was on the left bank of the Seine, but some attacks by the Franks and the Alemanni in the 3rd century actually meant that the left bank was left largely abandoned, and people moved to the, the island in the middle of the Seine, which is the Ile de la Cité, which is where Notre Dame is, that's still the centre of Paris. Mm. Uh, and the Frankish city later on moved across onto the right bank. Uh, so the left bank where all of this lovely limestone is was kind of left uninhabited, largely, um, which would become important. This wasn't, this was suburban, it wasn't a vitally important part of the city. And under this no longer important part of the city, this network of underground mines would develop to extract the material to build the city on the other side of the river. And the technology that developed was these well-based mining, where you would dig a well down into the earth until you hit about 20 metres below and then you would excavate horizontally from there into the stratum of limestone and bring it back up the well so it was very backbreaking labour and it basically makes a whole honeycomb of pores underneath the suburban regions that would later become the left bank of Paris What kind of time period are we talking about here again Joe? So this would be kind of from the 
15th, 16th century, the 13th to the 16th century would be wow. kind of the key okay. area for this evolving. And I think the 16th century is when Notre Dame is built, so a huge amount of limestone is needed for that. All right. We're calling this episode the, the, the Catacombs of Paris, but maybe more correctly, we should talk, call it the Mines of Paris or the Quarries of Paris, the Carrière de Paris in French. So this is like actually a 300 kilometer network of various tunnels and passageways and galleries and only 1.7 kilometers of it is the catacombs later mm. on. So it's a tiny fraction. Uh, but the terms are used interchangeably by they particularly are. by outsiders like us. And we're yes, exactly. We're going to be using them interchangeably as well. So get used um, to it, yes, listeners. Um there's no actual written records of this mining till the 13th century. So there's 18 quarries mentioned in a, a document from 1292, some kind of commercial thing. Uh, a century later, um, Dame Perenel is given permission to continue mining in her land. So she's obviously mining already. Oh, wow. So, you know, this is kind of happening mysteriously and unrecorded. And this is a pattern we're going to see that, like, these mines are not well documented. Um, they're just stripped for what they have and then left. But we do start to see evidence of these gallery-like effects. It's basically, people would dig out from their well and leave little pillars to hold up the roof of the gallery. You mm. had this like cathedral-like effect okay. when all the limestone's been removed. But this is quite risky, you know? Um, the rock isn't that sturdy, and you leave a thin amount to hold up the entire, you know, city above you. That's that's risky. There were later innovations where they would actually build stone pillars, like strong stone pillars behind them, or they'd backfill the, the galleries as they emptied them. Um, that's obviously safer. But this is really undermining the city in an invisible way. And literal um, way. Yeah. And it is obviously dangerous work. People got collapsed upon and trapped and died. And there was diseases. And mining is not the glamorous lifestyle uh, you would expect. Basically, farming people from the country would move here because it was good paying work and non-seasonal. So it, it, there wasn't a shortage of people to do this back-breaking work. Hmm. And something just worth mentioning is there's kind of two distinct layers of limestone of slightly different qualities. So you can actually have two layers of gallery uh, above each, below each other, separated by just a few meters of um, of rock. Uh, that people came back for seconds for seconds, basically. So by the 16th century, these stone excavations were operating around the present day Jardin des Plans, the Boulevard Saint Marcel, the Val de Grasse Hospital, Southern Luxembourg, which is a, an area of Paris, confusingly. Okay. And um, this stone was used to build, as I said, the Notre Dame Cathedral, which uh, unfortunately had a, a great fire a couple of years ago, but the, the stone facade did very well. So um, well done, limestone. Well done, shellfish. You done uh, good. Doing well. So as Paris expanded beyond its 13th century walls, which is to say moving more onto the left bank, it began expanding over these warrens of forgotten tunnels and unmapped tunnels. What could possibly go wrong? You know, there were occasional collapses uh, as the faubourgs or, or suburbs began to expand. And these were where sort of, you know, working class people would have moved to from the countryside and built up these these quite dense uh, suburbs. And they they were quite prone to collapses. Um, Mark's going to talk about some of the really bad ones. But this started as soon as these, these areas began expanding. But modern mining techniques from Italy, the ag and barrage uh, involving backfilling the cavities, did help to prop up some of the ceilings. So the techniques were getting better. Um, and was, was the mining one, still going on at this time, Joe? Yeah, a little bit. Um, as, okay. as this became 
populated, it became less popular. But yeah, I, I think it did continue all the way um, because they were still building the city. Yeah. So it's literally, as you, I think you used the term earlier, and I'd never really thought about it much before, but undermined literally means, you know, being mined underneath, mm. you know, a, a settlement or a, or a, you know, a populated center. Um, yes. Well, yeah, I think that term comes from sieges where you, you're trying to get under the walls of a city and uh, make them collapse. Okay. But this was being done accidentally rather than on purpose. You know, yeah. it's having the same effect. And again, Where, you know, like, how, yeah. how would you police this stuff? Like, there would be no, even if the, the city of Paris said, we don't want you doing this anymore, like, it's it's already huge. It would already it's be already, hard to find the damage people. Is so, done. Exactly, yeah. So, you know. And at all these different levels as well. So, um, I didn't find too much about what people were doing in the mines in the earlier period, just that they were associated with crime, with, uh, you know, on. on unsavory types as underground areas often are you know mm, people yeah. would find a little passageway that wasn't being used and it'd be make a nice den or a smuggler's cave or something but there was a nice story in uh, Erin Marie Legacy's book uh, Making Space for the Dead which we mentioned uh, of a character called Cesar who sold tickets to the devil's subterranean lair which is what he was branding one of these tunnels as and that really foreshadows what's going to happen in the 19th century so he was really trading off the, the infernal connections and the connections with danger. And that was something that we're going to see crop up again. But he, he was a, he was arrested and he died in the Bastille in 1615. So the government oh, didn't, wow. didn't like this. But yeah, he was clearly a forerunner of seeing the potential of creepy underground areas for tourism. That, that seems excessive for doing some tourism <laughs> with a bit of a gimmick. Yeah. We're yeah. sending you to the super, super max prison. For, be, for being I, I mean, a tour maybe guide. Maybe he was doing blasphemy and stuff. Like, there is right. rumors that black oh, masses were celebrated, you know. The Satan-y stuff, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Catholic France. All right. Okay, I'm there. And then the last thing I, I want to mention, just leading up to the most interesting period and in the, the transformation of these mines, is that what really got the state interested in the dangers of this undermining, as, as you say, Luke, was that in the 17th century, some royal institutions began to move to the left bank. So the city was expanding. And so too was the, the posh things. Uh -oh. um, so in 1645, the Abbey of Val de Grasse, which would later become a hospital, was built by Queen Anne in thanksgiving for having a child after 23 years of childless marriage. He would later be Louis the Fourteenth. 23 years um, of miserable humping. Uh. <laughs> uh, and I think Louis the Fourteenth got to lay the foundation stone. It took so long to get things shored up below wow. ground. Um and the Paris Observatory was built in 1672, but both were found to be severely undermined. Uh, and a huge amount of the budget was spent on reinforcing long abandoned cavernous mines. Uh, and I saw, I, I couldn't find a, the, uh, the origin of this quote, but apparently some writer said everything, you know, if you want to think about the problem of these mines, everything that is above the ground is no longer below it. Mm. That's an Which interesting way of thinking is, about it, yeah. Is a good way of thinking about it. See so if you've yeah. got this lovely cathedral or monastery or, or, hospital. or observatory made yeah. of limestone. And there's nothing supporting it. Yeah. 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 So we've got this network of tunnels over eight hundred hectares and across seven Arundis months just waiting for something to happen. All right, Mark. Uh you want to tell us what happened next? 
Yeah, there's, there's pl- plenty of somethings. Uh, so I'm, g- I'm going to take a couple of couple of different angles here. Um, I'm, I'm going to start with um, the history of graveyards. So um, here's his- where we start to get spooky. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, graveyards. Hoo, 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 hoo. Uh, Fifty million years ago, humans started dying. Yeah. <laughs> As almost right after we we were born, we started dying. Um, so historically there had been a requirement for a church to never reuse its graves because you know I guess you're sanctifying the ground etc uh, and you know um, misery loves company but corpses don't I guess so um, this was and I suppose the the resurrection was considered to be imminent so. oh I guess yeah you, you wouldn't want a queue of people marching out of the grave when Jesus <laughs> comes back <laughs> uh, Brian you're on my hair Brian Brian you're on my hair oh, yeah okay. Yeah, anyway. I'd I'd love to be resurrected, but there's somebody on my face. Like, yeah. <laughs> right, um, that's a way to go. Uh, anyway, yeah. so um, yeah, this 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 idea of never reusing graves was fine, but obviously unsustainable because uh, ultimately everyone dies and you're just taking up more space. By the 800s, parish priests were being allowed to be buried in their own parishes, even if there wasn't a fresh plot, so they were kind of first to uh, to ease away from that. But by the 1700s, this was completely normalised, and people wanted to be buried in their local church graveyard. Hmm. Paris? Uh, I'm not actually sure. I, I wasn't able to check. Uh, or, or I, let's say, I didn't bother to check whether Paris was the biggest <laughs> biggest city in Europe at the time, but it probably was and certainly was kind of certainly the most among important the city. biggest cities yeah yeah mm. it, it, it was you know the metropolis of europe so uh we're, we're, we're talking big for for the era um but uh anyway this means lots and lots of dead bodies because lots and lots of people lots and lots of dead bodies and there's only 32 graveyards at the time nice. uh, yeah so um the, the the kind of exemplary cemetery we're going to talk about is the um cemetery saint innocent uh, I'm not sure which which T I should be pronouncing hard there. Saint Innocent is another way to pronounce it, which sounds weird. That sounds but good. Saint Innocent the, is, is what the Holy Innocents. The uh, yeah, the, yeah. Saint Innocent, I will say. Uh, Presumably the ones Herod killed. No, maybe not. <laughs> the babies. Oh yeah. God, right. Yeah, oh yeah. Babies. Oh well, well, welcome to welcome to Dead Baby Cemetery. Um, oh God. Yeah. Anyway, so um. This was the biggest and the oldest, and therefore, one must assume, probably the fullest. Um, by around the middle of the 1700s, it was taking in about 10% of the city's dead. So we Oof. are talking about 1,800 dead French people per year. Um, also, the cemetery was was also serving uh, other churches. I, I have 18 to 22 other churches, um, two hospitals, and a morgue. Um, an awful lot Seems of dead like people. too much. Yeah. Mm. Um one of these hospitals was the Hospital uh, Hotel Dieu, so Hotel God, uh, I guess. Um, it was poorly ventilated, damp, uh, had a 20% fatality rate. Uh, quote, what in theory are the most innocuous diseases rapidly acquire serious complications by way of the contaminated air. Simple head and leg wounds become lethal in that hospital. Um, I mean, what what do you really expect when you end up in the Hotel of God? I mean, <laughs> it does you're on like the way out, basically. For, uh, yeah. Yeah. But uh, I mean, the, I, I mentioned this to kind of give an example of, of just kind of how how disease was seen. It was kind of all about bad air. Uh, the air yeah. is unclean. The air is dirty. That kind of thing. Not Which is so close. They're, they're getting there. They are getting mm. there. You know, at least it, you're seeing that it's connected to it's not just 
malevolent spirits or yeah. whatever, or that your bile being out of out of whack with your, your, your humor is your humor yeah. is yeah yeah. But so, I I don't know if you you you're going to mention it later, Mark. But like I I remember reading somewhere that the 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 the, the graveyard was now like meters above the ground level. It was yeah. so full. Well, well yeah, I I was I I was we'll just trying to picture like how this you know in 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 physical terms would work like you there's only so many square feet of dirt that you can bury people in you know it's it it seems like it, it eventually you would run out of capacity for something like this they, but they do seem very keen on mass graves in this era as well like they un- do. uncovered mass they, graves they, yeah um i guess i mean a body is mainly water so i guess once you take out the water and the kind of the chest cavity collapses and and other grisly things that I guess it, you do make space, but you're right. There, there is an accumulation of stuff there for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in 1737, there was growing concern about Saint-Innocent Cemetery. So some doctors from Hotel Dieu decided to run an experiment. They brought in fresh soil from other cemeteries because they felt the soil in, in um, Saint-Innocent was getting kind of gross and fetid, such was the, you know, corpses in it. Um, so they, they refreshed it, basically. They did a kind of a re-up from other cemeteries. And this this seemed to help a bit, at least for a time. In 1763, they launched a new study to take a look at the cemeteries again. And it concluded that the, quote, burials that take place in Paris are thickening the air and cadavers buried beneath our feet create the otherwise mysterious illness in the city. Other choice observations included mass graves stayed open for months for new bodies, charnel houses, so, you know, corpse vaults were so full, churches were packing their attics with old bones, and the cemeteries were so full, as you said, uh, Luke, that the ground levels of cemeteries were as high as the houses at their edge, about two and a half meters. So it is just a mound, a mound that is taller than you, filled with bodies. And selfishly, people keep dying. Uh, Estimates of 90,000 people buried in Saint-Innocent in about a 30-year period. Uh, As you say, mass graves with up to 1,500 corpses in them. They literally open a hole and just start chucking people in. Um... In 1779. There's no real dignity to it anymore when you're dealing at that scale. No, no, you're not. Yeah, there, there's not really. I can't. You can't imagine there's, you know, dirt in between those people. It's people on people, and then a thin crust of dirt on top. Yeah. In 1779, one of these mass graves was dug for 2,000 people, but within months it was so full the wall of a neighboring basement collapsed in from the pressure. So, um. We got a situation where the graves are too full. This is, uh, the rent is too high. To describe it, a situation. Yes, yeah. this is a situation. I'm sure. I'm sure the people <laughs> living over, you know, next door to this graveyard described it as a situation. Yeah. So, uh, f- further to the situation, uh, the re- the reviews of this did not improve. The famous 18th century chronicler of Parisian urban life, Louis Sebastien Messier, uh, characterized the cemetery as a danger whose quote cadaverous miasmas. Let's take a pause there. And let's just bask in the word pairing of cadaverous miasmas. That is excellent. Oh, <laughs> cadaverous miasmas. Okay. Cadaverous miasmas threatened to poison the atmosphere of Paris. He further alleged that wine, milk, and bouillon served in the vicinity of the cemetery soured within hours and warned that the cadaverous humidity that clung to the nearby walls had lethal effects. Quote, to absentmindedly place one's hand against a wall impregnated with this moisture was to expose oneself to the effects of venom. Oh. <sighs> yeah. Uh, we're, I mean, the, just you the know, whole neighborhood is just poison. Yeah, it, it, it would seem like milk and 
you know, bullion souring to the very air would be the kind of canary in the coal mine that you might need to mm. to be thinking, well, the, there's, there's probably something pretty unhealthy here going on, you know. Did you say something about mines? Yeah. Hmm. 20 meters below the surface, you say. Hmm. Oh, we, we, we should mention, sorry, that the, the San Jacinto is on the right bank. Yeah, it's in the, the core city um, on the right bank of the Seine. Okay, so quite far away there, from... Joe, yeah. We're talking old Paris here, so it would make sense if it was, yeah. Um, so, in 1780, things got worse. Other basements near Saint-Innocent uh, started to stink of rotting flesh. Apparently, this was particularly acute along the... You know, we're, we're talking about the French here, so they're they're very French. Uh, the Rue de Lingerie. Uh, the sounds like a nice place. Lingerie, indeed. A shame it stinks of corpses, but oh, uh, uh, you know. Well, I mean, air them out yeah. once in a while. Uh, oh. That's the trick. Um, mm. uh, in May, a formal complaint was made by a man who believed it was making his wife ill. Uh, Antoine Alexis de Cadet was appointed to look into this, as he had already been in charge of looking into the quote cadaverous vapors. Um, his report showed that things were as bad in Paris as they were in the city's hospitals, and he recorded symptoms from local residents, including respiratory problems, liver issues, delirium, and violent vomiting. 1780 was the year they closed Saint Innocent by royal ordinance. So, big graveyard, big closed. It's it's done. Basically, it, it's gotten too bad. People are like, we, we cannot deal with it. It has to stop. So, separately, we have another issue. And crisis number two. Collapses. There had been growing fears around the extent of the catacombs and how mining was undermining the structural integrity of the city. In the latter half of the 18th century, guess what? Buildings start collapsing left and right in Paris. Quote from Jacques-Antoine Delors, who's an architectural student, quote, reflecting on what a good portion of this magnificent town lies upon, one shudders secretly and begins to dread the actions of centripetal force. He also referred to Paris as an uncertain crust. Uh, oh, jeez. Yeah, which is pretty evocative. Um, yeah. What you're uh, living on, dear man, is what I would call an uncertain crust. Yeah. <laughs> Oof. Um, yeah. Uh, a part of me wants to make a joke about uncertain crust and lingerie, but uh, that's <laughs> that's that's old Moving me. Swiftly on. I've I've grown as a person. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, he was not wrong. Sometimes it was a whole house crumbling, collapsing. Sometimes, like in 1774, an 84 foot deep cavity opened uh, on the. Rue d'Enfer, or in English, Hell oh, Street. Yeah, yes. that's uh, that's not a street you want a giant cavity into the bowels of the earth to open up on. Not if you're a Catholic. Uh, no Welcome to the Hellmouth on Hell Street. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who Pay me five francs and you can come and see it. Yeah. Oh, Cesar! <laughs> Cesar's you revenge. Yeah. When you're at it again. Uh, we were right to put him in the Bastille. That that oh, he's been dead quite a that, while that actually. Tour, tour, him. tour agent. Thus uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> ever for tour agents. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, sixteen hundred is a bad bad century for them. In uh, seventeen seventy eight, a sinkhole swallowed up seven people into a hole eighty foot deep. Seven oh, no. people just got sucked into the ground. Oh god, I, I, Mark! I saw as well the the Arquois aqueduct, oh, yeah? which was like just under the surface of the street, had like manholes and stuff, feeding drinking fountains. Yeah, okay. Uh, it was completely put out of action when like 
uh, the mine 20 meters below it collapse, like 100 meters of the viaduct just starts flowing into a collapsed mine. Oh boy. Uh, which obviously, you know, drinking water is nice. Um, Essential, really. Yeah. Um, for for life so and other everything's falling apart hobbies. yeah you're, you're dead right uh, and that's kind of things are kind of coming to a head we we have multiple crises as you can imagine people are getting really scared and king louis the 16th child of imaginative parents as he was uh, hired intellectual heavyweight antoine dupont to map the catacombs and in april uh, 1777 they set up a new government department the Inspection Générale des Carrières, so, you know, Inspector General of the Mines, basically, or the IGC, or the Quarries, yes, indeed. They were founded under Charles-Axel Guillemot, uh, one of the top architects in the land, and on the day he was appointed, another house collapsed into a 60-foot sinkhole. Wow. Yes, and this was still, like, France still had a king when the IGC got set up. Yes, not for long. Not for long, uh, not for but long. yeah, I, I kind of thought this would... I'm surprised, yeah. this is So the king was doing something about the issues, uh, just Trying. not quick enough. <laughs> mm. well, as, we've, as we've heard, I think a lot of things were, were particularly slow moving at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so shall we take a quick music break? Let's shall. And our soundtrack for this episode is a well-known piece of music that is uh, strongly associated with the catacombs, if not... Uh, inspired by it and will will come up later in this episode. So what happened next, Luke? Yeah, so as you mentioned, Mark, um, we have the twin problems of the bodies piling up all over Paris uh, and the, the 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 buildings collapsing in numerous spots around the city as well. Um, sounds like a, a hellish place to live. Put those uh, hands together. Yeah. So it was soon proposed, as you might imagine, to begin moving the dead into the uh, disused quarries, five stories underground where they would be significantly less of a public health hazard Mm. however that was obviously no small task and would involve thousands upon thousands of bodies in various states of decay to be moved en masse um, from the graveyards to the mines there was however no real alternative to this plan and so in 1780 as you mentioned i think mark a royal ordinance declared the cemetery of of the innocents or saint innocent to be uh, an intolerable and illegal threat to the city which threatened the health of all Parisians. Uh, I'm going to quote directly from Erin Marie Legacy again uh, from her book. In December 1785, the dead moved from Paris's heart into what Victor Hugo would later call its intestines. Shadowy mm. figures entered the city's oldest and largest cemetery, the Cemetery of the Holy Innocents, and began to dig. Inhabitants of neighboring buildings watched, some from their windows and some from the streets, as these men, working by torchlight, began the lugubrious 
an unprecedented process of emptying this historic burial space of its sacred contents. The city workers spent the next year digging human remains out of the cemetery's deep mass graves and collecting the millions of bones that had accumulated in charnel houses and around its perimeter. Oh, oh boy. They then systematically transported carts full of bones and human remains to an underground quarry on the city's southern periphery, a newly designated municipal ossuary that would soon be better known as the Paris Catacombs. That's really grim. That's really it is gross. very grim. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, just the the image of of you know, uh, you know, dozens or you know, possibly even hundreds of people transporting cartfuls of human By remains hand. At, mm. at night. You know, really, it's really visceral sort of ha- manual labor. Oh yeah, it's horrifying, um, really. And like, was this like this must have been controversial? Like, this is sacrilegious almost. Yeah, I think it was. I mean, I think it's as but as Mark had mentioned uh previously, it had gotten to a point where there no really nearby cared no anymore, basically. Yeah. Anyone mm. who's disagreeing is gonna be far enough away that they can go screw off, basically. Yeah, the cemeteries began to be empty to begin with Son in a Son. Uh and it took around six months of constant work to fully excavate the cemetery and remove more than twenty thousand bodies from that one cemetery. And in total, it would take the city around 12 years to move all the bones from the various uh, cemeteries around around the place uh, from bodies numbering between 6 and 7 million into the catacombs. And some of the oldest seemingly date back as far as the Merovingian era, more than 1,200 years before. Good Lord. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I assume those are those are barely recognizable as human remains at this stage, but um, and and they they were pretty much just piled haphazardly into the caverns. Like there was no real. At first, you know, yeah, I mean, we'll talk a little bit later about how how they were eventually sort of reorganized. But yes, yes, I, my understanding was is just get this pile in here. Like there was no exactly plan to it. There was no record of of who was who. Yeah, I think I think it was just a big priority to get them out of the cemeteries as opposed to kind of organize these bodies in a, in a, in any kind of meaningful way on the other end. Mm, right. So be, and bear in mind uh, that if there are 6 million bodies that had been moved in this process, uh that is around 3 times more people than currently live within the city limits of Paris, uh which is oh, right. according to to my estimates obviously, you know, you've got varying levels of population depending on how you define a city. But mm. in terms of the city of Paris, uh, it's around 2.2 million uh, as of, I think, 2019. So, yeah, it's uh, it's an incredible number of people, however, whatever way you, you look at it. Um, now, the process was conducted with reverence and with discretion. So the, the, the space in the quarries was blessed before any, any bones were moved there. And the okay. bones were always moved at nighttime and in, in silence and were accompanied by priests. But the route between Saint Innocent and the Cleur de la Tombre Isoire became a nightly procession of black cloth covered wagons carrying the millions of Parisian dead. And it would take, yeah, uh, several several years to empty the majority of the cemeteries. But yeah, there there are I mean, I don't want to get too too uh, grim here, but there are, you know, reports obviously of, of body parts being left behind and, and, and kind of, you know, falling out of these carts and entire households even being forced to relocate due to the this the smell of these cemeteries being uh, excavated which i imagine was was horrific there's also 
reports that I read of bodies that had incompletely decomposed and reduced into large deposits of fat, which became known as corpse wax. Oh boy. In the parlance of the time. So that is. I hope you're not eating your dinner while you're listening to this podcast. Um, <laughs> Jeez. And added to this, you know, as you can imagine, the threat of an epidemic was pretty much imminent uh, at this time. And kids, if you're listening, this is why your parents tell you not to not to just, you know, to properly clean out your room and not just shove stuff under your bed. Because um, <laughs> this, wow. is, this is what happens. <laughs> um, That's a hell of a metaphor. But, yeah. But if you, yeah, if you've been paying attention to the timeline, this was around the, the time that above the ground, some pretty important stuff was happening. Again, we won't go into the details of the French Revolution and that sort of thing, but this is this is what? the time that this this was. Well, it's complicated. <laughs> it's very complicated. There's if, a lot of if other you podcasts. Have the time, you Mike to. Duncan's Revolution podcast took about a year or two to go through the French exactly, Revolution. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's it keeps revolving. Mm. And lots of people die, so that's not gonna help the problem, is exactly, it? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. On the supply side of this issue. Yeah. But yeah. within the context of the revolution, Paris, as uh, as we alluded to earlier, and as Anne-Marie Legacy alludes to in her book, Paris was grappling with the role of the dead within the city, both literally and figuratively. Mm. So, of course, the new government was keen to secularize death while keeping the Catholic Church on side. And as she notes, even before the violent spectacle of the terror, Parisian architects, writers, and politicians began thinking seriously about the dead as a powerful but untapped fount for public instruction and social cohesion. The dead could provide models of civic virtue and act as a bridge uniting past and present. So that even as they're as they're kind of being formed, these catacombs start to you know become a sort of important part of the fabric of the city. Kind of like a tomb of the unknown soldier kind of thing. Like here is yeah. France, here is our history in a hole in the ground. Here, here exactly. are all it's definitely got the potential to say, you know, egalite. Yeah. In in, in oh, death. Yeah. yeah, there and there were some famous or infamous characters from a Parisian history who would uh, come to rest in the catacombs, including Jean-Paul Marat, who was one of the revolution's most radical voices, and Maximilien de Robespierre. Mm, the terror himself. Yeah, anybody familiar with the, the history of the, the French Revolution will be very familiar with him. Chief Killy man. But I think plenty of people, like the, I think a lot of the um, people executed during the revolution would have ended up directly in the catacombs. So like we're talking up to this point with like secondary burial, where you're removing yeah. a decomposed body to a, a a more long-term resting place but some of these executions were like we've just guillotined a thousand people for being insufficiently republican this mm. week compared to last week when they were heroes of the republic but we yeah. changed the rules and they just get piled in on top of the the you know 1200 year old bones exactly Without without the priests anymore, I suspect. As churches uh, called yeah. Paris are turning into stables and But know. anyway, in, in, in seventeen eighty seven, uh the church and the graveyard at Saint Innocent was uh, destroyed and the cemetery itself was replaced by a, a herb and vegetable market. <laughs> right. There's also a fountain on the site which had been erected in fifteen forty nine called the Fountain of the Nymphs, uh, next to the church and it was dismantled as well and rebuilt in the centre of the new market square. Uh, and it's now known as the Fountain of the Innocents. Uh, and okay, it's I, a different energy. Mm, and I looked it up on uh, on Google Maps, and within sight of the fountain are a KFC, a McDonald's, and a Burger King. So, wait, what? To, and how is do, the bouillon doing? I I imagine the uh, the McDonald's burgers are doing fine, uh, given the amount of uh, preservatives that are in there. So, and then the the last thing I wanted to mention is there's a 2011 novel called uh, Pure. 
by uh, Andrew Miller. I'm not familiar with him, but apparently he's, he's a quite a well-known author. And that book is set within the destruction of the church. So basically, oh. you know, around this time where, where the bodies are being extracted and the church then subsequently is being demolished. I'm going to read you the summary from Goodreads. Uh, Deep in the heart of Paris, its oldest cemetery is by 1785 overflowing, tainting the very breath of those who live nearby. Into their midst comes Jean-Baptiste Barat, a young provincial engineer charged by the king with demolishing it. At first, Barat sees this as a chance to clear the burden of history, a fitting task for a modern man of reason. But before long, he begins to suspect that the destruction of the cemetery might be a prelude to his own. Mm-hmm. So, if anybody's interested in diving in more to the to this uh, particularly grisly period of history, maybe check that out. So yeah, up until uh, up until around 1809, the focus had been on transporting the remains of the dead rather than organizing them. But uh, that's all due to change, Joe, I think. Yes, that was all due to change with the appointment of the 33-year-old Louis-Étienne Ericard de Thury as the Inspector General of the, the Quarries. So his, his predecessor, Guillemot, had overseen the, as you say, the transport of the, the, um, the remains to the catacombs, but also a broader programme of consolidation uh, of the unstable mines. Um, so apparently there's all these inscriptions listing like his initial, the year and the, the number of the works on all these different reinforcements and right angles were made where there were curves and, you know, the whole network is being reinforced, not mm. just the, the, the catacombs bit. And obviously the work was made more difficult by the changing political landscape. I also heard that there was apparently an escape route that the king could have used through some of these tunnels, not the catacomb tunnels, but elsewhere. Some good the, that did him. It didn't really work out. Yeah. Um, and there was something in that book about that the exhumation of the of the entire royal family and the desecration of their tombs. And I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if some of those bodies ended up in these catacombs as well. As wow. you say, going back to the Merovingian era, it's like the revolution was quite robust in its, de- its secularization and its deroyalization of everything. There were some real radical Me- messing with the graves. Is, 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 that's pretty. You're committed. No one's going to doubt that. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. It's uh, no. It gets quite grim. Like revolutions go the whole way. They. Um, I don't know. They become quite inhuman. Um, you can't see the humanity in your enemies anymore. I think mm. that's probably the terrifying thing about, you know, this revolution to create a republic ended up with an empire under Napoleon. So yeah. that's the, mm. the era we're entering into, is it's all kind of come full circle. And Ericard de Thury, this new inspector general of the quarries, he was a French nobleman, politician, and a mining engineer uh, with 350 scholarly articles on the topic. And he was entrusted by the Republican government, uh, despite his background, um, with undertaking massive works on the mine system, in t- the entire network. But specifically, he focused on doing something with these catacombs uh, to make them a more respectful, meaningful and potentially profitable, uh, I suppose, or at least useful to society um, resource as a resource. So... He took. He inherited this disorganized deposit of bones, and he wanted to make it into a mausoleum that people could visit and reflect on death, on life, on equality, on immortality, and all of the potential things people were looking for 
were quite varied in the Paris of the early 19th century. I mean, they'd seen a lot of death, very up close. Blood had flowed in the streets. You know, people had gone to public executions for fun. People had been executed. Family members had been executed. It was, Mm. you know, what was death anymore? And trying to make something meaningful in that context, Mm. I think, was probably important. So... Down the 90 steps under the streets near Montparnasse, which is now quite an important cemetery in Paris, uh, you can find the, the entrance to the catacombs still. So this was this kind of tourist attraction aspect of the, the catacombs comes from about 1809. Uh, within four months of Ricard de Tori's appointment, uh, enough work had begun to start opening the catacombs to ticket-holding members of the public. Wow. So uh, there was a quote from him I found where he said, I believed it was necessary to take special care in the conservation of this monument. Um, This is something he said on the eve of the opening. Considering the intimate rapport that will surely exist between the catacombs and the events of the French Revolution, to accomplish this task, the interior was restored, the ventilation system was improved, bones were arranged with as much art as skill, Nothing was spared to make the monument worthy of public veneration. Just just two things real quick that mm-hmm. come to mind. Well, one is that, so it's getting back to that point about how the how the catacombs are to serve as like a, a, a monument to the French and that it's kind of a repository mm. of their human history kind of thing. Of their patrie. Yeah. Uh, but, and him, he's kind of linking it to the revolution. And it, it makes me think of a conversation I had in a country that had a very big revolution was founded in it and uh everything needed to be done in reference to the revolution it was like uh well you know we do this we do whatever we want frankly but as long as we say it's in service of the revolution we get to do the thing right. we get to do so there's an element of this which is probably like him kind of having to say this is about the revolution actually what, what legacy says about that quote is that He's probably implying something different, so he will later reveal himself to be, you know, a pious Catholic and a bit of a royalist. And for him, the events of the revolution, quite possibly he was more saying, you know, the violence, the revolution, this is a way to showcase that. Well, see, that was the other thing I was thinking, because if if, mm. if, if you are thinking of it from the the administration of the day let's say you would say yeah. mm, we we have all sacrificed so much there there has been so much death and so many people have had to pay such a high price for this new world we live in to which you know, anybody you know would then say that but you did that that's that's what you did <laughs> but it, it's how they're kind of creatively saying hmm they're, they're making it a we as opposed to a yeah. them and us which is which is really interesting and is you know worthy of the the, the most evil modern politicians of 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 of, of, of those of us but it, if, you, if you were at that time you'd go like hey, you killed my aunt you piece of garbage like this is not an <laughs> us you're trying to make it an us so that like you there's no more conflict if there's an us yes. it swallows the conflict but yeah exactly but in some ways the anonymity of the, yeah the anonymity of the bones facilitates mm, yeah. it is an us yeah you know your great-grandfather my great-grandfather who knows um and king or peasant yes who knows. so some of the, the key changes that were made was from an disorganized pile of bones the skulls and the tibias in particular were arranged into eerily beautiful arrangements as seen today so this is in the tradition of medieval ossuaries where, where, where like scenes were acted out by the kind of long bones a lot of the bones don't do very well 
but the the tibias and the femurs and the skulls are still recognizably bones um, and all the other bones are kind of stored behind these are used as kind of you build a wall and then behind you keep all the rest of the body mm. um right. i don't have you guys ever been to an ossuary like a medieval style i have not um i have been to an ossuary in porto in portugal mm. it's in the bottom of like a chapel but you kind of walk yeah. along and there's the kind of stone slabs and then you kind of look through this plexiglass and it's literally just a heap of bones just yes. in the basement. Yeah, no, I've, I've been to the Santa Maria della Concezione uh, de Cappuccini in Rome, which is, they've actually made like whole scenes acted out by little little skeletons. Oh, it's boy. really odd. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan, but that, that's the tradition he's, uh, he's leaning into. It's kind it's, of being, it's very creepy. Being too into it a bit, you know. Yeah. Um. The other changes with the old tomb inscriptions that have been just kind of haphazardly thrown around were were displayed with the bones. Decorative archways and signage were were put in, including the the ominous uh, message on the way into the catacombs: "Achet se isi l'empire de la mort," which is "Stop! This is the empire of death." which uh, is still is still there. That's kind of the famous welcome message. Cool. Um, decorative features were installed, such as fountains. The, the Samaritan fountain has like a goldfish pond in it. Lacrimonary vases, which is kind of the tradition of these kind of shrouds and vases that you would have seen in, in graveyard sculptures, kind of putting them into the ossuary. And uh, the catacombs were walled off from the rest of the tunnels for the safety of future visitors who might wander off and get lost. So they're kind of isolated from the, the tunnel network. And just a, the two two other things that are there in the mines now are f- before this period. So there were some sculptures carved in there by a guy called De Cure, who was a miner in the late 1700s, of like places he'd visited on the wars with Louis XV, ah. uh, which are kind of bonkers. And they're something you can visit on, on your tour as well again they're, they predate the catacombs but they um are in the same part of the the network and there's also a, a memorial to um a porter from the val de grasse hospital who uh philibert asper who had at some point during the french revolution he went down into the catacombs through a stairwell in the courtyard and he was found 11 years later down there so wow. he was buried on site in, in the 1800s uh, and then a memorial is engraved there. It's often visited. A guy called Etienne de Jouy, who published as the Hermit of Chausée d'Antin, because that's what you did in the 1800s, he visited in 1812. And the way he described what we were seeing was the bones bend into arcs and rise into columns. An artistic hand created a kind of mosaic out of these final remains of humanity whose ordered regularity only adds to the profound contemplation that the space inspires. Ten generations have been swallowed up here, and this subterranean population is estimated to be three times larger than its above-ground counterpart. Inscriptions placed on limestone pillars indicate which Parisian neighbourhood once contained these remains. Here all distinctions of sex, wealth and rank have finally disappeared. So that's someone seeing a very Republican, egalitarian Mm. view. And it Um, is... I mean, it's sort of mentioned there, but like there are basically art pieces that are made mm. from the bones down there, which you can you can will include, I suppose, some uh, some photos in the show notes. But if you're curious, like it's worth doing a Google image search of of, of kind of the catacombs and, and, and what they look like. And there are these sort of structures built from bones, which are which are, you know, 
very odd very odd um, but also have a have a weird kind of a i don't know eerie beauty eerie beauty is probably the best way to describe it yeah um so, so, so apparently uh, in 1812 one or the other so there was a guest book kept for these first couple of years of it being open and somebody actually described it as a beautiful horror in the uh that that's a guest book that's pretty ideal actually yeah mm. um but not everyone took the space seriously and this is something we, we see today like with people taking selfies at Auschwitz you know it's it's people respond to horror differently uh, so some people were very reverent and would see this as like oh yes this is a great leveler and others are like hey look bones yeah <laughs> and that's just people being people so there was some horror that people weren't taking it seriously and others were taking it almost religiously and you know uh, it was open to all those interpretations so, um, as I said, uh, Ricardo de Thury was a Catholic and a royalist, and this shaped his work post-Napoleon. So, you know, um, after Napoleon and when things returned to a bit more um, royalisty, In 1815, he erected a memorial altar of sorts to commemorate the bones of the September massacres during the French Revolution, who were, as I say, buried here directly. And... Uh, many travelogues from the time report women swooning at this site, lamenting revolutionary violence. So, and that was kind of a, a bit of a cliche of people talking about the uh, the catacombs back then. Uh, again, uh, that that book, Making Space for the Dead, talks at length about the guest book and what people have written in the guest book, which is very interesting to read. Some are really patriotic, some are merry, some are horrified, um, some saw it as an equalizer, some lamented the anonymity of the bones. You know, you see in it what you will. But there's an interesting feature that, like, post-revolutionary France was quite um, macabre in its tastes. Mm. So, you know, Madame Tussauds had a guillotine exhibition in a city that had just been executing people by guillotine by the the dozens. Um, there were phantasmagoria, seances were popular, gothic novels were popular. Um, and apparently the Marquis de Sade had written about this, kind of saying, after seeing so much bloodshed, the authors were really challenged to, you know, uh, have to really come up with something grotesque and horrifying to entertain a French audience now. Which, in that context, the catacombs make sense as a tourist attraction. Hmm. Over the ground, a lot was changing in Paris as well. A, a guy called Prefect Houseman was appointed as the prefect of the Seine. And, you know, a lot was going on in France. There was revolutions, coups, various republics various empires a few kings as well wasn't Houseman the guy who um, redesigned Paris to have the, the kind of the boulevards that would like exactly. wide open spaces kind of that's why well that's mm-hmm. why, why people talk about kind of fashion becoming such a big thing in Paris because people could just see each other on these huge yeah, kind of no, like you're, 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 that was exactly it so like above the ground the weaving cramped narrow streets of Paris that you know Victor Hugo writes about and Hunchback of Notre Dame and Les Miserables great for building barricades <laughs> Sweeping demolitions, streets were widened into the beautiful boulevards, as you say. And um, yeah, he, he he was appointed by Napoleon III, who was the president at that point, and then led a coup and became an emperor because oh it was France in the 1800s. Um, and initially people were really into it because it was making France, uh, Paris beautiful, accessible, airy. Uh, but he did keep going and he annexed uh, <laughs> all the suburbs into Paris as well. Okay. But he, he talks about the underground galleries in his memoirs. The, the underground galleries are an organ of a great city, functioning like an organ of a human body without seeing the light of day. Clean and fresh water, light and heat circulate like the various fluids 
whose movements and maintenance serves the life of the body. The secretions are taken away mysteriously and don't disturb the good functioning of the city without spoiling its beautiful exterior. He's taking the metaphor pretty, so, pretty far here. <laughs> yeah, he, he also had to shore up, as he was building these boulevards, he had to sh- build tunnels underneath many of them to make sure there was no weaknesses. So you actually ended up this copy of Paris with roads with street signs included underneath the new streets, which is really weird and creepy, like a doppelganger city. Mm. The last bone deposits are made during these renovations in the 1860s. And in 1861, the last person I want to talk about is uh, Felix Tournachon, more widely known as Nadar, who was a photographic pioneer. And he had associations both with the catacombs and with our favourite kind of vehicle, um, which is uh, a hot air balloon. Hot air balloon. Ah, mm. oh, of course it is. So th- this guy took the first aerial photographs from hot air balloons and also took the first underground photographs. Uh, the first photographs using artificial light. So the first like flash photographs, I suppose. Um, and these were taken into catacombs. But this is the time where everything is kind of a first when a new technology comes along. But his his giant balloon inspired Jules Verne's novel Five Weeks in a Balloon. So um, it was kind of inevitable that Paris story would have a a Jules Verne connection. Excellent. Yeah. And as a tourist attraction, they opened, they closed, they were open all the time. Sometimes they were open twice a year. Sometimes they were closed for years on end. Yeah, like it was messy and it continues to be messy through the 20th century too. But from 1809, some people could visit sometimes. And it was on the map. Cool. interpretation of our theme music you just heard came from a really good friend of the show and former catacomb visitor will woods and thanks very much to him for sharing it with us we also have to thank our amazing patrons who support us much better than the tunnels under paris managed to support the city above recent backers of the show include gracie jbh92 lachlan burtonshaw father thomas stewart ward gahan Justin Graham, Jacob Sellers, Nicholas Lobmeyer, Jacob, John Wood, Manuel Dornacher, and Scott Burton. Thanks to all of you. If you'd like to become a backer of the show, you can visit the link in our show notes or simply go to patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast. But for now, let's get back to the spooky stuff. Okay, so um, my next section is a little bit of a hodgepodge of different bits and pieces. Um, so I'm just I'm just going to talk about each of them individually. The first one is uh, revolutionaries. So uh, the catacombs, mm. obviously, 
as you alluded to earlier, Joe, are are perfect for plotting and and uh, you know secret meetings and things like that. So in 1848, I, I read a, a, a few small bits about revolutionaries using the catacombs as clandestine meeting places in a lead up to the overthrow of the July monarchy and the establishment of the Second Republic. That was the 1848 revolution in mm-hmm. in France. And then during the 1871 Paris Commune, uh, the catacombs are also home to a number of insurgents, although not as glamorously. I found a, a good quote from a book called The Rise and Fall of the Paris Commune by William P. Fetridge which says, on the afternoon of Sunday, May 14th, the Minister of the Interior received at Versailles a telegram announcing that the fort of Vannes had been captured at half past 12. The insurgents evacuated the fort through the quarries and underground passages. However, some of the insurgents appear to have lost their way and to have wandered about the catacombs uh, with which the caves were connected until they found an issue. Several remained underground for 24 hours, and there were probably others that were lost in labyrinth of arched ways, which extended an immense distance to the south of the city. The men who arrived by those galleries were in miserable condition, being covered with dirt and worn out with fatigue. It was this incident that probably gave rise to the rumor that a number of gendarmes disguised as National Guards had attempted to enter Paris by the sewers. <laughs> so mm. not quite uh, quite that, but... Um, yeah, I, I I really wouldn't fancy getting lost in these catacombs uh, and tunnels for, for 24 hours. It didn't sound like much fun at all. However, the most associated group that I could find in terms of the catacombs pre-World War II were the Comité Secret d'Action Révolutionnaire, or better known as La Cagoule. I, I was not familiar with these guys. Have you guys ever heard of La Cagoule before? Not heard of La Cagoule, no. Yeah. Really? Uh, yeah. So they, yeah, I've heard the name. There, they were a group formed in the 1930s, which planned to topple the Popular Front government by uh, infiltrating the foundations of the Senate and other government buildings, presumably through the catacombs and the tunnels. They were a fascist-leaning and anti-communist terrorist collective, mm. uh, and they planned attacks and bombings on Paris to destabilize uh, the government uh, in the years immediately preceding the Second World War. And they often utilize the catacombs, from what I read, as meeting points and staging grounds for attacks uh, on on government targets. And interestingly, I thought among uh, among a number of other people, uh, Eugene Schuller, who is the founder of the L'Oreal Group, was one of the funders of this organization. Oh, mm. cool. What? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, on the 11th of September, 1937, they blew up two buildings owned by the, the Iron Masters Association seemingly to create the impression of a communist conspiracy. And uh, their book on street fighting tactics bore the title of The Secret Rules of the Communist Party to avoid revealing uh, their own uh, kind of plans in case the books were ever found by the police. So I thought that was kind of interesting. So this is kind of a false flag thing. Yeah, yeah. It is is very much a false flag thing. Yeah, literally what's happening, yeah. then uh, there was also a piece which I found in Gastro Obscura, uh, taking a, a sharp right turn here. Uh, the the Gastro Obscura, for those of you that are not familiar, are the the kind of food oriented wing of of Atlas Obscura, which do a, a oh, similar right. thing to ourselves of kind of pointing out uh, interesting places around the world. And yeah, apparently there's an article on Gastro Obscura which I'll link to in the show notes. But um, yeah, since the 17th century. There was a variety of mushroom grown in the in the Paris of Versailles, which would be known uh, come to be known as the Paris mushrooms. Uh, but in the 19th century, that the the kind of uh, 
cultivation of mushrooms moved underground and it said that this was due to deserters from napoleon's army who fled to the catacombs and found them an ideal spot for growing mushrooms with a little sustenance provided by horse manure <laughs> Um, yeah, well, they don't need light. Exactly, stuff. exactly. Uh, so I'm surprised actually nice that the damp cave, lovely. Yeah, uh, I'm surprised they, they didn't think of this earlier. Um, but since then, mushrooms have been grown quite regularly in some of the abandoned quarries and mines, and uh, seemingly thrive on the la- limestone upon which the city is built. I hope not in the ossuary bits. I didn't find much evidence of that, but uh, okay. yeah, that's I mean, a creepy mushroom. It would be, re- yeah, that'd be very weird. So by 1880, more than 300 mushroom farmers worked in the Parisian quarries to produce up to a thousand tons of Paris mushrooms every year. Thousand uh, tons. Required... Yeah. Holy flip. Yeah, that's a lot of mushrooms. And obviously, you know, because of the structure of the mines that we talked about earlier, this this all had to be done by you know hand, and these mushrooms probably had to be winched up by cart, things like this. So yeah. they they required quite careful management because they were quite picky in in the areas in which they would grow. But uh, apparently the the trend fell away in the 1890s and into the 1900s. But yeah, there are some, I suppose, hipster farmers who are who are still, you know, trying to uh, keep the tradition alive today. I, I believe. Bet, yeah, yeah. And then in terms of tourism, the catacombs became sort of a, quite a popular spot for recreation and 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 illicit events over the years, uh, as, as I think you touched on previously, Joe. Because mm, they were they were often closed for long periods of time mm. and that's when the illicit events happen i suppose exactly like i mean the the, the church had objections at times and the, the state didn't want people going underground and having you know dinner parties meetings at other times yeah and various entrances would have gotten closed up at various times to try and stop people going into the dangerous caverns and getting lost but as we've uh, mentioned so there's yeah, they, what 300 they, kilometers of these tunnels so it's mm. it's probably difficult to so, seal off every entrance so there was sanctioned tourism and also um, kind of uh, ad hoc um, thrill seeker tourism. Yeah. Mm. And that continues to be the case today, actually, which exactly. we'll talk about later. Yeah. But um, yeah, the in mid-1897, just one, one um, now infamous uh, incident that I want to touch on, an illegal concert was held in the crypt. It took place in, in a spot known as the Crypt of, of, the, of the Passion, uh, mm. which features a large barrel-shaped column made entirely of bones, most of them oh skulls. God. I would encourage you to, to, to again, yeah. to take a look at this. It's it's a it's a particularly creepy-looking structure. It's like a barrel, but, like, banded with skulls. Yeah. It's very, yeah. very creepy. Um, so, yeah, in mid-1897, in mid there was a, a concert held in, in that room in the catacombs, which featured 45 musicians and over 100 guests. And uh, apparently the music played featured uh, Chopin's Funeral March and the Dance mm-hmm. Macabre by Camille Saint-Saëns, which we have featured throughout this episode. Uh, you've probably heard it a couple of times now. And so if the image of people dancing to the Dance Macabre around a two meter tall column of skulls doesn't turn you off your cornflakes, I don't know what will. So that that, that's, that piece was about a, a decade old at that point. Mm. And um, it's been suggested it may have been... Uh, inspired by by the catacombs i i haven't found much to really solidly back that up but it was clearly performed there quite early and gave it it certainly seems likely i mean certainly various articles mention it uh, and, yeah and we we, sure. we we will we will also mention it uh with with and as much I, proof as those articles had yeah i saw a comment that it was it was considered almost quite a scandalous piece like it's it sort of uh, reworked a 
Gregorian chant piece that featured in a lot of funerary rites mm. into this kind of weird waltz scenario. And people were, were shocked by that in the 1890s. So, uh, I mean, it takes more to shock people with each passing decade. But mm. That was considered a little bit, a little bit edgy. Considering the environment in which it was performed, I would yeah. question its its edginess. But uh, anyway, <laughs> we'll we'll move swiftly on. The last thing I want to talk about in this section is the the liberation of Paris, mm. which which has been heavily associated with the with the catacombs. So after the occupation of the city in June 1940, the catacombs were used both by the Nazis and the French resistance as a way to evade detection as they moved around the city. And although both sides, uh, from what I've read, were seemingly using the tunnels, at least on a semi-regular basis during the period of the occupation, which lasted for four years, I haven't been able to find any account of them actually running into each other. <laughs> so that'll give you an idea of how extensive those tu- tunnels are. And there's an interesting anecdote from um, a guy called Nigel Perrin, who was writing a blog post for the, the University of Kent. He says, in 1943, a medical student called René Soutel explored the air raid shelter uh, in the basement of uh, Saint-Anne, a Paris's oldest psychiatric hospital which, where he was studying. And intrigued by an old lock gate set into the wall, he picked the lock and began exploring the tunnels beyond. Uh, over the course of the following year, Soutel and a, a, a fellow student, Jean Talriach, would uh, map out the limestone networks of the Grand Réseur Sud, uh, stretching across the four arrondissements of the left bank, and their nightly explorations resulted in an extraordinary detailed plan annotated with numerous entries, exits, and shortcuts, along with the unexpected discoveries of sophisticated German air raid shelters constructed under the Jardin de Luxembourg. From the beginning, Sotel later wrote that his intention had always been to produce a plan to aid the work of the resistance, and he did ultimately deliver that map to the leaders of the resistance, although I'm not exactly sure how much it was relied upon in the, in the subsequent years, but in any case... The catacombs uh, really came to the fore during the liberation of the city in 1944. On August 19th, just over a month after D-Day, resistance leaders in Paris called for an immediate uprising. And the majority of German troops had wisely left the city by this time, making conditions ideal for the resistance. However, up to 20,000 soldiers remained, supported by the Paris police, or so they thought. And the Nazis had had established an underground bunker uh, during their time in the city below Lycée Montagne a high school on the 6th arrondissement, which was used as a communication center. And the resistance took over the bunker and set up their own headquarters there, from which Colonel Roll Tangui led the insurrection for the liberation of Paris in June 1944, which also uh, was joined in by the French police, or, or many of them uh, working in the city who, who turned out did not actually support the, the occupying soldiers. And uh, there's just an interesting uh, anecdote from an article in the New York Times. Uh, it says, equipped with its own telephone exchange, the shelter gave Colonel Roltangui and his staff access to 250 telephones around Paris, including at the police headquarters and in air raid shelters, allowing them to bypass official communication lines that were likely to be tapped, and also served as an, an effective hideout as messengers gained access to the nearby railway line, either to deliver r- intelligence or receive new orders. And every day at 10 a.m. between 1940 and 1944, a German soldier would have called the bunker to ask if there was anything to report. And during the week of the liberation, the female workers at the switchboard would pretend that all was status quo. <laughs> so apparently, apparently they were not nice. uh, not too keen on uh, 
on actually physically going to check on what was happening. But that bunker, I think, is now a museum to the the, the resistance uh, and and the liberation of Paris uh, in 1944. And there's also a novel called Paris Burning, which was, I think, later adapted into a film, which details some of the events at this time surrounding the catacombs and the liberation of the city as well. <laughs> So moving into post-World War II, Mark, I believe there's there's a lot of different uh, bits and pieces that have happened between 1945 and, uh, and today. Uh, so you want to tell us about a few of those? I resent. Yeah. So um, the, the first thing to mention is a real bummer. Uh, so, uh, I mean, from, from the perspective of kind of everything we talked about, uh, it's that in 1955, access to the catacombs was made illegal. So mm-hmm. you're not allowed to go there unless you're going to the kind of the, the, the touristy bit that is kind of quite, um, you know, c- heavily curated. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And no, the, the, basically the ossuary has tended to be accessible, but everything else has been made illegal. Yeah, the, the uh, hundreds of kilometers. Like, unless it's explicitly allowed, I suppose. Yeah. And I mean, nowadays it, it is sort of a it is a cool, slightly dangerous, edgy urban thing to go to the catacombs. You know, outside of the kind of the the, the touristy uh, curated area, uh, I, I I read a lot of students from the like the what's it called the School of Mines or the the Institute of Mines, which is a, like a third level institution, are tr- traditionally quite into it for obvious reasons. But it's it, it's it's policed as well. It's not just a it, mm-hmm. you know it, it is illegal. Please don't go. There there are um, cataflicks or catacops as as they were known. Uh, although. I don't really hear an awful lot about that from the kind of the cruel or urban explorer type accounts you read. It's never, you know, we were getting chased by the police. It's it's literally just, you know, we went down, we came back up. We never saw anybody kind of thing. It's not, uh, I guess it's well, very we, big. We haven't, we haven't introduced the word cataphile yet, have we? Which is the, the people who love the catacombs. Mm. Oh, right. So we probably, it's probably an oversight in our part, but like the, the, these people making these weird maps, like, like the guy you mentioned earlier, Luke, but kind of making them for fun are called cataphiles and they're or cataphile it's it's possible we're 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 creating cataphiles as we speak (laughs) you know with Mm -hmm. the with the creation of this podcast we might be creating new ones possibly maybe maybe uh but uh, i remember i think it was the bbc documentary i i heard on this mentioned that the cops are primarily concerned with like some of these tunnels go under banks or hospitals Mm. or you know prisons and so there are places that are more concerned with policing than Fair others. Fair enough. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, so it's not a, it's not as simple as like the, the authorities are killjoys. Like there are some legitimate <laughs> reasons to no, as well as it being dangerous. Because um, like we don't want you tunneling under a bank and robbing it. Speaking of danger, uh, an area of Paris called Clamart. Um, so it's not particularly remarkable. But we're talking about Paris, so it still has a lot of kind of cool history stuff that happened there. Uh, Henri Matisse lived live there and uh, Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat died there in the hospital. And one other big major thing happened uh, and it happened to be built on a highly eroded chalk mine. So on June the 1st, 1961, after torrential rains, buildings, houses and a stadium got pulled into the earth approximately eight hectares or almost a square kilometer in total three quarters of which was built wow. up at the time uh, all dropped about two to four meters wow the the human result was 21 dead 50 injured and about kind of 200 victims in total um the chalk that had been underneath uh, had been used to make hydraulic lime which is sort of mortar mm. used for use for building but the mining had stopped in 1925 
and as 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 mentioned before uh mushrooms were being grown down there as well but they they kept they i I saw this mentioned several times that the ground was likened to gruyere for all of the the holes in it effectively this is swiss cheese like there's Mm. this is highly highly eroded um but a slightly more upper class swiss cheese not the emmental that uh, (laughs) uh, usually um so the a quote here describing what happened uh, it was a Thursday, market day. It was around noon, and I was in catechism, um, which is a Catholic thing, Joe? Yeah, like learning learning the the beliefs of Catholicism. Okay. Catholicism so, class. That, yeah. Okay, so uh, we, we heard a loud noise, like an explosion. I ran home. My mother was with us. She had also heard this rumbling, which had opened the doors of a cupboard. I went with my parents to the scene of the disaster, and we found a sad sight, a stadium and a street completely destroyed. So just to mention, uh, it's still quite dangerous, and I think there's still kind of ongoing concern about it. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to the kind of modern incarnation of the uh, IGC, that group that was uh, founded in the 1700s to kind of inspect and secure the, the catacombs. But before I get to them, I'm going to mention uh, UX, uh, or the Unther Gunther, uh, who are kind of the, the, the best example of, you know, cool urban stuff that happens in these uh, uh in, in these subterranean layers so um they're a mix of secret repairers uh so the phrase cultural gorillas as in g-u-e or uh, not <laughs> the other kind uh, but uh, uh who uh, you must try these grubs uh who undertake various projects around the city not least secretly repairing the enormous and centuries-old clock in the paris pantheon so um that was a, what a what a weird piece of vandalism. Like, it was we're going to repair your clock against the law. So I remember reading this years ago. So basically, they the, the Pantheon is you know when people say the Pantheon of the Greats, they mean you know a a big place where they kind of say this guy is great and here's a statue and mm. here's here's a monument to them. And Paris literally has a Pantheon to famous fantastic French people who who are good and dead. Um, and there was this old clock from the early eighteen hundreds in there and was all rested and rusted and wrecked and they were like well you know we can't we can't like ask they're not going to fix it it's too expensive it's like you know a super listed house so you can't do anything to it but it just kind of stayed in the back room so they basically stayed in after the place closed and found a secret kind of area of the pantheon and just kind of worked on it in shifts for like years basically just painstakingly repairing this old timepiece uh, in a secret area of the building known only to them I, I i have my notes think brenda blethin's secret attic room in carnegie hall in home alone 2 uh, <laughs> it's it's basically that they made it into their own little little spot and uh yeah they, they did this marvelous thing not super thanked as a result either because you know it showed up the the administrators of the pantheon as being you know not not very smart uh or good at conserving all of their their fancy stuff Depending on individual interests, UX has developed a cellular structure with subgroups that specialize in mapping, infiltration, tunneling, masonry, internal communication, archiving, catering, and cultural programming. The hundred or so original members are free to change roles at any time and have access to all the tools available to the group. There's no manifesto, no charter, no rules, except the fact that each member must keep the secret. Becoming a member is by invitation only, and when the group realizes that outside people already have activities similar to those of the UX, an exchange is created in order to unite forces. Um, so one thing to mention, just one example um, uh, of, of kind of what they do down there, is the UX cinema. So um, a bunch of police went down, and they found a stereo, 
with guard dog yowls burned onto a CD. They found 3,000 square feet of subterranean galleries, strung with lights, wired for phones, live with pirated electricity. And then the officers uncovered a bar, a lounge, a workshop, dining corner, and a small screening area. The cinema's seats had been carved into the stone itself, with room for 20 people to sit in the cool and eat their popcorn. So they'd made a cinema <laughs> down there, as well as all of this other kind of, you know, cult- cult- cultural, um, you know, institutions. Brilliant. Um, on the floor of one cavern, officers discovered an ominous metal container. The object was fat, festooned with wires. The police called in the bomb squad. They had found a couscous maker. Um, so uh, and I, I found out um, what the French word for a couscous maker is a couscousier. Uh, that's a, a fantastic word. Um, so a, a few days after the Couscousier incident, uh, officers returned. This time they brought agents from Electricité de France because they were a bit PO'd about all that uh, free electricity that was going. Uh, but they were too late because UX had gone in, had undone all the gallery's wiring and disappeared with the equipment uh, and vanished with the booze. So um, they're, they're they're pretty sharp, these guys. You love to see it. A really cool thing about the, the whole cinema incident is that when the police came back, apparently the only thing remaining, you know, as everything was gone, was a, a note saying, do not look for us. Pretty cool. Which, it's, uh, is, that's is, either chilling is, or, you know, it's slick. you know, just really disrespectful to the police. <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> Can be both. Could be both, uh, yeah, yeah. Hey kids, disrespect the police yeah. uh, and all forms of authority. Yeah, uh, and I I couldn't find really much detail about other stuff they had done. The um, the cinema caper was the best reported, but yeah, they they spend a lot of time there. They they're probably um, the most organized group to go down there. But there's an awful lot of kind of you know just like you say, cataphiles people who kind of go down there. I did read a a pretty interesting article um in the new yorker uh about somebody kind of going down and just kind of what they saw and what they experienced i think they were down about two three days they slept down there um and they they, they kind of met up with people and had parties and stuff and they were playing music down there uh i gotta say not for me uh i felt claustrophobic reading the article and they have to kind of some of it is is kind of tunnels that are six foot high that you can kind of walk through uh sometimes someone's just... crawling on your belly through water exactly yeah. it's it's not all it's not all cool vibes uh and, and yeah, underneath montparnasse me. there's apparently a, a more recent ossuary where like the the mass graves in montparnasse have been re- relocated down a big well and some of the cataphiles oh, yes. just wander through that well and the bbc documentary i listened to has the sound of the he gives the cataphile he's talking to it recorder and he's just walking over the bones and it sounds like walking over like wood Hmm. it's really odd and not super respectful i would have thought uh so you know there's there's a whole host of things to be discovered and they really thrive on discovering it and and some of the maps that are out in the public domain are incredibly detailed in terms of like low here muddy here big open room here you know and there's graffiti over from, you know, the last two centuries, yeah. some of which is beautiful artwork and some of which is just, you know, I was mm. here. Um, spe- speaking of that, I was, I was going to say that, you know, that you have these kind of uh, UX crowd who are, you know, mm. very cool and doing, you know, secret heist refurbishments of clocks and stuff like that. Um, and, and then I was I was also looking at a video of just kind of wandering around the, the, the catacombs and the, to the point about kind of graffiti, the 
they flashed over a a a uh, mural of uh johnny depp as like uh i don't know edward scissors hands or something like that and i was like that's not aged well (laughs) that's a a pretty stupid thing to put up anywhere uh uh including in the catacombs uh so yeah uh, some of it i guess is is also done by idiots but what, what are you gonna do so um just a couple of other things uh before i wrap up so um we, we've kind of talked about um why the police might be down there here's an example 2017 wine theft uh thieves stole wine reportedly worth about two hundred and fifty thousand euro after burrowing into a private cellar from the catacombs there were 300 bottles of vintage wine yeah uh, so the assumption is that they had to scout it out before they they uh, actually did it because these are very fancy and pricey wines. But uh, yeah, use it to steal things, the catacombs. Um, and also in 2017, it was a busy year for the catacombs, there was an account of two boys who got lost down there, two teenagers. Uh, they were rescued, so just to say that at the top, but they were lost in the pitch black for three days. They were 16 and 17. Oh, man. Eventually taken to hospital and treated for hypothermia after being found by search teams and rescue dogs in the early hours of the morning. Quote, it was thanks to the dogs that we found them, implying that possibly they may not have found them. And that is very, very scary. Yeah. There, there, there was a thing discovered in 2016 down there, uh, which was, a, a like I think, a, a camcorder was found i've heard about this yeah uh which is this really creepy found footage now of like this guy exploring discovering bones discovering different caverns there's the johnny depp mural (laughs) everyone loves that and get he gets increasingly panicky and distressed and then the like he drops the camera and there's just his footsteps running away into the darkness and oh that's horrifying no no one knows what happened so apparently the movie As Above, So Below was kind of inspired by this this found yeah. footage. And some people think it's a hoax. Um, kind of a I hope it's a hoax. Situation. <laughs> Let's but say it's, it's a hoax. You know, you can imagine going crazy down yeah. there if you were down there alone in the dark yeah. with only bones for friends. <laughs> and Johnny Depp. <laughs> Johnny Depp. Um, so the last thing I'm just going to mention is the IGC, the, what did we say, the Inspection Generale Carrière. Uh, they still exist they got a website you can check it out so they exist to this day uh, and if you're buying a property in the paris region you can pay them the princely sum of 10 euro and they will let you know what the situation is below your property and how concerned you should be that you might be sucked into the ground like the residents of hell street they also have a lot of boring but probably very important stuff about the water table so uh yeah that's uh that's everything from me Excellent. I I did see that in 2009 there was some vandalism which led to the catacombs being um, closed, but I I think that has been reversed since. And uh, there's obviously been some limitations on visitor numbers in 2020 and 2021 Mm, um, due to, you know, things that have happened in the world. Um, But it still seems to be operating as a tourist attraction. That's the legal bit. You can definitely go there. Next time you're in the City of Light, you could check out the City of Dark. Mm. Yes. Um, maybe. Would you guys be but, interested yeah, no, in, in going to visit next time you're in Paris? I'm kind of annoyed I didn't. Like, I, I, I spent an afternoon wandering around Montparnasse, like, a couple of years back. And it was very interesting, you know, Oscar Wilde's grave and... and um, Jim Morrison... I, th- I think, uh, yeah, and Samuel Beckett hmm. and ver- various other people. 
But yeah, if, if I'd have known this existed, I probably would have taken the 45 minutes to an hour it recommends for the yeah. tour uh, I, to, to see something so unique. But it, it is weird. Ossuaries are very strange places. I think I'd actually be more interested in the the mines and galleries and uh, kind of infrastructural end of things because I'm boring <laughs> than the kind of, ooh, horror. You know, the sort of the... the, 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 the grotesque as entertainment yeah i wouldn't be talking i'd be i'd be be curious about the the air raid shelter um and and those kind of Mm. things um yeah it's more of more of my street but uh i i I would certainly have some mixed feelings about uh about the the, you know going to visit the catacombs but no i'd 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 consider it for sure but i don't know if it'd be top of my list yeah I, i i i can hold both things in my head that like there is something a bit dehumanizing about just tossing the remains of six million people all in all under the bed. Place. And, mm. You know, at least with the renovations by Ericard de Turi, there were sort of signs put up saying these remains came from Saint-Denisson, these remains came mm. from this cemetery. But I don't know, I, I think it's, it's kind of sad that the kind of individualism of people has lost, but I can also see the other side of things, the sort of the egalitarian democratization you know in death is class gone is identity gone maybe that's something to ponder like it's it is a powerful thought-provoking yeah monument and that wasn't what it was made for but something was made of it rather than it just being hidden away out of sight which is probably worse than taking away people's individuality is taking away the possibility for them to be thought about and and meditated upon so maybe it's a good balance i I think if i did go i think i'd be like i'd bring a rucksack filled with like food and several loaded (laughs) up chargers for my phone and batteries yeah i'd I'd, I'd take it really 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 seriously yeah Uh, and so i thought you were gonna say i'm gonna take a rucksack and fill it with bones i was like no no no. have a conversation about breadcrumbs uh that's yeah Uh, glow sticks your interest in the occult has gone too far i just want to get in have a have a little little look around and then go out and have a very nice coffee and and never go Mm. in again and indeed oh and there are many ghosts apparently um so that's that's worth uh, worth being aware of if you're into that All kind right. of thing. Uh, like the, that sculptor who I talked about who, who made little little dioramas of places he'd visited in the, in the wars. He got smushed, he, right? A, a, a staircase collapsed on him. Oh, and he's okay. got a, some date of the year he's supposed to wander around. And the porter from Val de Grasse, similarly, you know, you hear the clanking of keys and, you know, it's this guy. So, you know, if, if you want... If you want nightmares, there's plenty of uh, plenty of material. There I think, I think there's plenty of fuel up. just in this episode, as a, you know. But yeah, for sure, if you if you want to go and deeper, if you excuse the pun, what could be more terrifying than meeting the ghost? Of yeah, <laughs> a very killy ghost. Exactly. Um, okay, so yeah, if you want to find more episodes of the podcast, uh, you can find more of those at 80dayspodcast.com. You can also check out our show notes there. Uh, which should also be available in your podcast app of choice. But uh, if you want to do a little bit further reading or look at any of the pictures that we've mentioned or or links, they'll all be uh, in the show notes. Uh, You can also follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook under 80 Days Podcast. 
And if you want to get in touch and complain about days um, podcast, yeah. And if yeah, if you want to get in touch and complain about particularly uh, our pronunciation, mine especially, I think uh, throughout this episode, then you can email us at eighty days podcast at gmail dot com. Uh, Luke, I think we've pronounced the word mine very well. Uh, <laughs> repeatedly, I think. I think Probably, okay. uh, maybe. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not super confident on that one. <laughs> you can also review the podcasts, uh, which helps us uh, helps us uh, to reach more people. Give us a, a five star rating and and tell us how how spooky the episode was uh, over on Apple Podcasts. And if you have a little bit of extra spare change, throw away. We would appreciate it. You can do that at patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast to get a few uh, bits and pieces of bonus content and and uh, get your name shouted out on, on episodes and things like that. The, the the stuff you're all used to by now. One Sue will do, to be frank. <laughs> okay. Oh, That's it. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> thanks very much for listening and coming down into the, into the depths of the catacombs with us. Hopefully next episode, I think, will be a little bit more above ground above ground yeah <laughs> filled um, with alive people but this this has been an interesting experiment i i i i am yeah. i i think it's been a been a good journey so um yeah thanks for thanks for listening with us and uh, we'll see you next time bye bye au revoir